If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath your seats, so we encourage you uh, to do that. We're going to be starting in verse 14. And as you're turning there, let me give you a a very brief introduction uh, to the text this morning. This sermon that that you're about to hear is part two of chapter nine as we continue to look at the doctrine of election or predestination. If you're just joining us today or if you missed part one, um, the second half of uh, Romans chapter nine might create more questions than it actually answers. So I do encourage you to, to one, uh, look at our podcast or listen to it um, and and check out part one on the podcast. Um, It's recorded and available for you there. I encourage you to listen to that if, if you have a lot of questions about the first half of this passage. But then also number two, if you still have questions, please feel free to reach out to me. You can shoot me an email. It's tommy at mercyhouse365.org. We can dialogue digitally. I'll meet up for a coffee with you. would love to just talk through some of these things because they are complicated, and this is not an easy topic. The doctrine of election is essentially the idea that God chooses or elects those who will be saved, that God predestines or he preordains people for faith. We see this introduced in chapter 9 after Paul raises an important question. He says, if if there are people who are Jewish, meaning as we read the Bible, we understand that, that they are God's chosen people, if they have been teed up for faith, meaning they've been given every opportunity, every advantage through their cultural, their ethnic, their spiritual uh, heritage to identify Jesus as the Christ and, and receive him by faith, if that's true, and if some didn't, as Paul mourns the reality of in the beginning of chapter 9, then does this mean that God has failed in some way? And Paul's answer is no, God has not failed. Because it is not as though God is a bad salesman and that those who didn't ultimately choose to buy his product, and this is ironic because God actually offers it up for free, but perhaps he's such a bad salesman that in some cases people didn't even want to receive the free item. And Paul says this is not the way that salvation works. It's not as though God is not compelling enough for some people or even that people have uh, as free of a choice as they might think. But Paul shows this by looking at the story of Jacob and Esau, that, that Jacob's faith and blessing wasn't something that was acquired by himself. It, it actually was something uh, that he didn't figure out on his own, and, and then he went and bought it for himself. We see in Romans chapter 9, the second half of verse 10 there, it says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So hear what that says, that Jacob, before he had done anything good or bad, while he was still in the womb, He was chosen, and not his brother Esau. This was not because of works, it says, but because of him who calls, that is God. This is one of the many explicit teachings on God's election of his people. And Paul's reference to predestination here is to say that if salvation was up to the person, okay, for them to be able to discern and weigh the decision and to choose God themselves, then yes, God would have failed those who didn't choose him. 
He wasn't compelling or persuasive enough, and they chose something else. But that would be a very humanistic approach to the idea of salvation if it were centered around and based on the person. And that is not what we see in God's word. God chooses, not based on what we look like, not how fruitful our future lives would be or how good of Christians we would one day be, but based on factors that are known only to God himself. Why Jacob and not Esau? God only knows, literally. Now, if you remember, I posed two questions that typically come up when we talk about the doctrine of election uh, and predestination. Um, And and there are are others, and you might have others, I encourage you, please write them in. You can write them on a piece of paper that's on uh, the seat in front of you. You could drop it in the offering as it comes around later. But, But these are two that are probably most typical. One is, what about our free will in all of this? It doesn't sound like we have any free will in this picture. We spent the majority of last week's sermon talking about free will, so I'd encourage you again to check out that sermon. But simply speaking, free will as we think of it, so having absolute personal autonomy over our whole selves, having the power to think and do whatever we want completely free from any outside forces is not something we see in the Bible. Specifically, it goes against what we know to be true about God and his sovereignty. That means his control, his reign, and his rule over all aspects of his creation, including us and our will. If God is not sovereign, so if we can operate outside of his rule and reign, then he is not God. A theologian and pastor named R.C. Sproul says, Free will does exist in the Bible. We see God exercising his free will all the time. So this is the first objection or concern when thinking about election. The second, which we're going to spend today talking about, hits a little bit closer to home for some of us. Is this fair? Is it fair? Is God's election and choice of some for faith and not others fair? Is God doing something that we are perceiving as, as, as just wrong and not okay? See, for some of us, learning that God chooses Jacob in the womb is just purely beautiful. So you have this picture of God choosing someone for faith and it having nothing to do with their actions, nothing to do with their potential. But it begs the question, again, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? If it had nothing to do with how handsome they'd be or how great of things they would do one day, if it had nothing to do with them at all, and there's no apparent basis for that choice that we know of, how in the world is that fair? What about Esau? Is it fair that God hated Esau? Now, that is a hard verse at face value. How can God hate someone, and how in the world would that be fair? We weren't able to get to that verse last week, but let me just take a minute to address it because several people asked this week, and, and, and I think it would be helpful. The, the hatred that's communicated here in this verse is what's understood as comparative, comparative hatred. We see other examples of this in the Bible, which I'm going to show you briefly, but what this does not mean is that God has an active animosity toward Esau or that he desires harm to be done for Esau, or that he loathed Esau. This is how we would understand what it means to hate someone today. But hatred is used in the Bible oftentimes comparatively when it's in contrast to the opposite. 
which is love. Here's what I mean. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus is teaching, and he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that in order to truly love God, we also need to have animosity toward our parents. He actually teaches the opposite. He says you need to honor your mother and your father, not loathe them. So what does Jesus mean here? Jesus is pointing out this idea of comparative hatred, that in contrast to the love of Christ, which we are called to as Christians to hold as supreme, to value Christ in a loving way above all else, which is worth the loss of all things, including our natural relationships that we have with our mothers and our fathers and our sisters and our brothers and our friends, the love that we have for them is far less than the love that Jesus calls us to have for him. So much that it would appear comparatively in contrast like hatred. Even though we still have love for our families and anything else under the sun, the love that Jesus calls us to ought to trump all other loves. And by comparison, can be perceived as hatred. So Jesus wants us to love him with the kind of love that he has for us. An intense, selective, total, comprehensive love. And anything short of that, when we are not the object of Christ's love, feels like hatred. Here's another example from the Bible of this comparative hatred playing out, because I think it's important to drive this home. In in Genesis 29 and 30, those two chapters, we see Jacob, the Jacob from this passage, trying to marry this woman named Rachel, but he gets duped by her father uh, into marrying her sister Leah. It's a huge mess. He ends up marrying both, which look, that's a whole other can of worms. Um, it, there are, to, to keep it short, there are plenty of things that happen in the Bible uh, that God does not condone, and this is no exception. So God's vision for marriage that we see in the Bible is one man, one woman, for one lifetime. So this is not a prescriptive text that teaches that polygamy is okay or that God is pro-multi-partner relationships. If that is a serious concern or confusion for you, I encourage you to seek me out. I would love to talk about that more That's not what we can really dive into this morning. The point that I want to pull from this story is this. Jacob loved Rachel. He wanted Rachel from the very beginning. He chose Rachel as soon as he saw her. And Leah perceived this. And the way that Leah articulates this perception, this experience of this in chapter 30 of Genesis is a sense of hatred from Jacob. Now, there's no evidence that would show that Jacob had animosity toward her or that he treated her poorly, but his love for Rachel was on a completely different level than his love for Leah. Rachel was the object, the focus of Jacob's love, and Leah knew it and felt it. And even though Jacob wasn't mean or malicious toward her, she considered herself hated by her husband. This is comparative hatred. 
So God's selective love, like that of a husband for a wife, like that of a father for a son or a daughter, when, when in contrast to God's general benevolent love toward all people, it makes that general love feel like hatred. That's the contrast you see between Jacob and Esau. Uh, God did not have animosity or loathing toward Esau, but he compared, when compared to his selective, chosen-in-the-womb love for Jacob, it was comparatively hatred for Esau. Now, this is important to address because it further sets up the second question that we're going to be tackling with the rest of our time. Is this fair? Is it fair that God loves Jacob with this selective, this unique, laser-focused love that made his love for Esau appear as though God hated him? Is it fair? This is where it's important to distinguish between fairness and justice. See, fairness is often relative and arbitrary. We, we often use our own measuring stick to determine if we feel that something is fair. It's often based on our own feelings of how someone should be treated, even ourselves how we ought to be treated. It's why a child will exclaim, that's not fair, through tears, but they can still be wrong. And it's not to say that they're not picking up on a perceived injustice, but fairness is immature justice. Justice, on the other hand, is not relative. So true justice is what is unequivocally right. It is certain. It is the standard of correctness. The ultimate example of this for us is not the American judicial system, ladies and gentlemen. As Christians, we get this standard from God, who is righteous. So God is not someone who just exudes what is right or always does what is right, but who is the standard of what is right and just. So God is the measuring stick. He is the scales of justice. He is the law that tells us what is right and wrong. And it's important to note that we can think that something is unfair even when it is just. This often happens when we read God's word, to be completely honest. And so a better question then to is God being unfair would be, is God being unjust? Let's read our text and find out, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So notice here, what I want you to see is that Paul's defense his reason for why God is not being unjust when he chooses some for salvation and not others is him pointing to God's mercy and his compassion. What we need to hear and remember as we put God on trial to see if the judge is actually being just is that what he's being put on trial for is not a crime to begin with. What we're asking when we wonder, is God being just or unjust by predestining some for faith is, 
Is, is, is it just for him to dispense his mercy and his grace how he sees fit? Is that unjust? See, the picture we have from the first quarter of Romans is that we are all sinful. We're all broken. And, and not just because we do sinful things, but because we are actually sick at the core with sin. And it affects our actions, but it also affects our minds. It affects our hearts. It affects our wills. And we see that there is no one who is free of this. There is no one who is righteous. And this is a serious problem with serious consequences, that in our sin, we will inevitably die, and we will be separated from God forever if we remain in our sin. So with that picture, the the state of the unbeliever is like this. Think of it like floating lost at sea in the middle of the ocean. You don't have a life preserver. There's no shore for thousands of miles. You are alone You are as good as dead. But then there's the sound of a helicopter. It's very faint at first. It grows louder and louder until it's directly overhead of you. And the wind from the spinning blades is overwhelming as this heroic hand of salvation reaches down and offers it to you. Now pause in that moment, okay? Pause in that moment. Is it unjust for the Coast Guard helicopter to save you? No, why would it be? Even if there are hundreds of other people in the water and they could only save one person and they chose to save you, would that be unjust? No. That pilot can choose whoever she wants to save. It might feel unfair, perhaps if you want to be very pragmatic about it, and and say that, you know what, the pilot should choose to save the youngest person among all of us because they have the the most time to live left in their lives. Or maybe they should say, well, they, they should choose the person who is most innocent as opposed to the criminals who are in the water. Or, or maybe that it's unfair that she has this exclusive power to choose on her own. It should be a committee of people who decides who she gets to choose. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. And this is where the illustration breaks down. The pilot perhaps has this obligation to save the people. It's their job as a member of the Coast Guard to save the people But God does not have to save anyone. That is the hard truth. What this illustration also doesn't show us is that it is our own choice that we have rebelled against God and have thrown ourselves into the middle of the ocean to begin with. So God's choosing of those whom he will save from their own sin, whom he will rescue out of that water, is not something that is owed It is not something that is due. It is, in fact, an act of absolute mercy and compassion on behalf of God. And it is not unjust for God to show his mercy and his compassion. He can freely dispense his mercy and his compassion however he sees fit. That's what we see in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The doctrine of election, predestination, does not make God unjust when we understand that God's choosing of us for salvation is him exercising his mercy and his compassion. We cannot put God on trial for injustice for how he freely decides to dispense his grace any more that you can put me on trial for helping someone fix a flat tire on the highway. 
or giving my daughter a gift or doing this, all right? Who here likes share coffee? It's not a time to be bashful. Share coffee. Who just loves share coffee? Raise your hand nice and high. Nice and high. Really high. Really high. Really, really, really high. Really high. Oh boy, here we go. All right, all right, here we go. Got some hands. Okay. What's your name? Katya? Katya. Okay. Have we ever had a conversation about this before? Have you ever told me that you needed anything? No. I want you to have this. This is a gift card to share, okay, for $50. Thank you. Hold on. Chill out for a second. What's your favorite thing at share? Hot chocolate. So you can have like three hot chocolates at share with that, all right? Perfect. Now, hold on. Was that unjust? Is it unjust that I only gave Katya a gift card and no one else in the room? It might feel unfair to you, but remember, those two things are not always the same. And while God's election of some and not others might feel unfair, it certainly is not unjust of God to do. Verse 14, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Other translations of those words include, certainly not. May it never be, and my personal favorite, God forbid that he is unjust. Still for some, this just still sits wrong. And and I want to acknowledge that this is a hard doctrine to wrap our minds around, let alone having our hearts rest upon this doctrine. We spent the entire midweek this past week wrestling with this idea of election without coming to any, like, for everyone. Everyone did not just have, like, an epiphany as they walked out. Like, oh, yep, we got it. So to be fair, I don't expect you to hear two sermons on predestination and then adopt these as solid pillars of your theology for the rest of your life. I will be the first to confess that there are aspects of this that I am still working out in my own heart and in my own mind to understand. I certainly don't have it all figured out. But what, what I invite you to do is to ponder and meditate on these things, not as a vague theological concept or some philosophical ponderings for late night when you have nothing else to do, but as God's word that is right in front of us right here that we are reading right now. And so my prayer is that we as a church would be one that doesn't quickly flip the page when we read something that's confusing or hard for us to see and hear, but that we would humbly seek truth in understanding God's word through the spirit within us. There is objective truth. It is discernible here. The doctrine of election and predestination, it undoubtedly poses lots of questions. And and Paul actually anticipates another as he explains that God isn't unjust in choosing some people for salvation. So let's read these last verses and we'll actually finish out for the day. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The question at the top there in verse 19 is a natural continuation of the skeptical train of thought that Paul is anticipating as he introduced this idea of election at the beginning of the chapter. It asks, if God has predestined some for faith and adoption into God's family, then what choice does anyone have? And if we don't have any choice, then how can God still find any fault in us? This is a really good question. And we seemingly have God's complete sovereignty and his unstoppable will on one hand, and in the other, our personal responsibility and agency in the other. The person's looking at both being like, ah, how, do we, how do we fit these two together? And to the frustration of those in Rome who had this same question, and for some of us here who might have this same question, Paul does not answer it. Paul doesn't answer it, at least not right away. What does he do instead? Look at what he says in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Paul issues a sharp rebuke in the form of a reminder. And that reminder is, you are human and God is God. This is a purposeful pause for those who might feel like they are warming up in that debating seat, who feel like they're starting to get into a groove, they're rolling up their sleeves as they question God and his sovereignty and put his character and his actions on trial. Those who might think that they can actually out-reason or out-logic God and find a hole in this old argument and see greater and bigger perspectives than God himself can. And if we have an arrogant haughty attitude like this, Paul soberly reminds us that we are finite. We are severely limited in our knowledge and understanding. We are a wisp that is here today and gone tomorrow, a created being. And God, who we're trying to go toe-to-toe with, is our creator. (laughs) He is infinite in power. He is unsearchable in knowledge and wisdom. And he is the ancient of days who always was and will always be. See, this is very much like a Job moment. It's a Job moment for us. If you remember, the book of Job is an account of a man who experienced some incredible suffering. Suffering on a level that I doubt, honestly, that anyone in this room has experienced. He has experienced the loss of all of his earthly possessions. It all burns to the ground. He loses all of his ten children. He even loses his own health. He ends up with boils and sores all over his body from head to toe. All his friends are absolutely no help or any encouragement to him. And his wife, the only other person he has, says to him in chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's a tough word to hear from your wife. Job has no one. And the majority of the book, 
as we see, uh, as we read it, is Job wrestling with everything that's happened to him and around him. He's trying to understand why God would allow these things to happen to him. And he certainly has faith in God. He never curses God like his wife recommends. He speaks very highly of God. But what happens over time is you see Job's pride growing. And eventually, all he talks about is wanting to have an audience with God. He wants to talk with God so he can make a case before God. He wants to ask God some questions. This is Job chapter 23, starting in verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. This is Job speaking. That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know, that, I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There is an upright man. There, there, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Now, Job believes that if he has a one-on-one with God, that he'd be able to lay his case out before God, and God would see and understand Job would be able to argue with God and convince God, very similar to Romans chapter 9 here, that God has been unjust, that Job never deserved any of this, that that he was a good person, and that something must have snuck past God, that the system is broken, that God doesn't quite know about it. And so Job would be able to fill his mouth with arguments and show God where God messed up. If only he could have an audience with God. Then he'd be able to explain these things to God and make him aware. Well, Job gets his wish. In chapter 38, God answers Job out of a tornado and begins what is a 127-verse rebuke spanning four whole chapters. It is the longest account of God speaking in the entire Bible, and it is to correct a prideful arrogant human being who has no idea what they're talking about. It begins like this, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I'm not sure anyone in the history of humanity has been humbled quite like this. Job, Job, sorry, Job wanted to ask God some questions, but God says, how about you answer my questions? And then he begins to interrogate Job. Chapter 38, verse 4. This is not going to be on your screen because it's, it's a little bit longer. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? God goes on for roughly 60 more verses with questions like this. And then Job responds to God in chapter 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. 
God says, I'm not finished yet, and tells him again to put on his big boy pants as he continues to speak. And God even gets a little bit sarcastic. He starts mocking Job, which he's allowed to do because he's God, and he's merely pointing out what is so clearly obvious. This also will not be on your screen. This is Job 40. I do encourage you. You can flip there, starting in verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked when they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge, then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. There's another two chapters of this. Now, what is God trying to communicate to Job? It is the same thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the Romans at the end of chapter 9, that we are not God. And even though we might think we have some good arguments, even though we might think we perceive injustice in how God has allowed things to happen to us and around us, even though we think we would be able to reason with God and explain to him that we actually have a case against God or how, how, how God could be doing a better job with his creation. If we just let him know what is wrong with it, then we are mistaken. We are clay. We are Play-Doh from before. And God is the potter. He is the creator. Some tr tough truths for us this morning, Mercy House, but Paul is reminding the Romans, as we also ought to be reminded from time to time, our place before God. This is not to demean us. It's not because God hates us. In fact, God loved Job. He blessed Job. He bragged about Job. He was chosen. Job was chosen by God. God humbled Job because God loved Job. You see in 1 Peter 5, 5, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God cannot have fellowship with the proud because the proud don't know their place before God. God's like, we can't do this when you think you are God. There is only one God. This is why God was challenging Job to do things only the true God can do. Verse 9, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Job cannot do those things. And so Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, this is right after the previous quotation I gave you, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Be careful, Mercy House, that in our learning as we mature and grow in our knowledge, in our perception, in our insight, or, or our wisdom, that we do not grow puffed up in pride, that we don't walk around with an air of arrogance or superiority, not just toward one another, but certainly not toward God. This does not mean that we shouldn't ask questions and seek answers from God but not with a spirit of pride, as though we're demanding something that we deserve from God. 
God owes us no answers or explanations for anything. There are some things which we will never know or understand, both about God and his infinite complexity or why things have played out in our lives the ways that they have. Romans 11.33, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Mercy House, this is the main point of the text in today's sermon. Just because we don't understand or know, just because we don't always hear God answering us does not mean that God is absent or unjust. What we see in chapter 9 and in the story of Job is that God doesn't have to explain himself. But what we see as we read the Bible is that he does. <laughs> That's what this is. When we read the Bible, the Bible is God's spoken word to us so that we might know him and know his ways, that we might understand at least in very small part what is the infinite depth of his love for us. The Bible is a letter that's written to us that explains what God has done for us and why. That he has sent his son to die for us because he loved us and chose us and wants to redeem us back to himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, it is a reminder of the most lopsided display of love and grace that has ever been shown in the history of the world. That God, who is infinite, creator, holy, perfectly sufficient in himself, no need for clay, what he does is he forms us in his hands. He breathes life into us. And even though we chose to disobey and to run away in our sin, becoming sick to the core in our sin, the infinite and holy God, creator, he died for his creation in order to redeem his creation back to himself. Mercy House, do not lose sleep over what you do not know, but rest upon what you do know as it is spoken in God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, you are God. We acknowledge that. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand this morning. God, we confess that we often feel like we are the center of the world. And if not the center, at least 
incredibly important in the world. God, we often wrestle with why things have happened, why things aren't different. And Lord, we thank you that you sympathize with our hurts and our pains. You encourage us to cast our anxieties on you because you love us. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that you would humble us if we have a heart of pride and arrogance toward you. Father, there is no injustice in you. God forbid it. You are incapable of injustice. You are inscrutable in all your ways. So Lord, we are thankful that you are this way. Thank you that we have no lessons to teach you. God, thank you that there's nothing that escapes your sight. There's nothing that we have to inform you about. You see all, you are in all, you rule above all, and you work all things for our good as we place our faith and our trust in you. So Lord, grow each of us in this truth. Help, this, help us have this be a place where we can plant our feet and know and trust that even when things don't make sense, even when we don't hear your voice, even when it seems like you're letting injustice happen and you're not doing anything about it, Lord, we can trust that you are and you will bring all things to glory and you will reconcile all things to yourself. Father, we love you. We thank you that you first chose us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons and daughters into your family. And we respond in thankfulness, in praise, and worship of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.